Well, we are in for a treat. We have the blessing of hearing from Kathy Craven, who has attended Believers Fellowship for 20 years and is lovingly involved in ministry to the women and children of our church. Kathy grew up as a missionary kid in Mexico City from the age of 6 to 16, and she finished high school in the U.S. She speaks excellent Spanish. Kathy and her husband Jim have been married for 45 years as of this past week. She is the mother of two grown children and the grandmother of 10. Her hobbies include quilting, reading, and painting, and she loves the beach and fellowshipping with her sisters in Christ. Kathy has been a believer for 50 years, and she desires to know God in greater depth and walk in greater obedience, submitting to him in all things for his glory. She also desires for others to see and know Jesus as their Savior, walk in truth with joy, and grasp the all-surpassing goodness and great, greatness, grace of God. Let's welcome Kathy. Sorry about the drinker, but I'm going to need it. So, um, I just want to say this place looks beautiful. The flowers are magnificent. And Kaylee, I understand you had, where are you? She's gone. <laughs> I was going to commend her. Anyway, the place looks stunning. And you guys look great. And you're not scary after all. So this is wonderful. Um, and I want to thank you, Laura, for such a gracious introduction. And I also want to thank the Women's Ministry Leadership Board for giving me this opportunity to talk. Most speakers will tell you that they are the ones that get the most out of preparing a talk because if you think about it, I've gotten to spend a lot of time in God's Word uh, listening to the Holy Spirit and feasting on His truth. So what could be better than that? But I have to confess that public speaking is not my comfort zone and not really a talent. But a good friend encouraged us two years ago at a fall luncheon that we were to live for Jesus and not our comfort. So that is my goal today. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we are gathered today to learn from you. Your word is what sustains us and gives us life. So my earnest prayer is that only what is true, what benefits the hearer, and above all, glorifies you be what is remembered today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, you might be a little bit confused about the title for this talk. Um, it's a little different from what was advertised. I've had five months to prepare this talk. So it did start out with just pleasing God, but I realized I couldn't talk about pleasing God without first talking about how we can come to know him in order to please him. And I couldn't talk about pleasing God without reminding us that he will keep us to the end with that ultimate reward of being with him forever in his heavenly kingdom. So leaving any of it out felt like telling a story without a beginning or an end. And I needed to cover it all because it's all a picture of God's magnificent work of grace. Hebrews 11.6 sums up essentially what I want to say. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The title, From Securely End to Safely Home, is my description of the Christian life from beginning to end, and it has three parts. 
Securely in refers to the position of being in Christ when we believe the gospel message. Something that is secure is, by definition, positioned or attached firmly and correctly, and therefore not likely to move, fall, or break, like a ladder, for instance. If you've ever fallen off a ladder, you know how important it is to secure it. I thought this definition was helpful in explaining security in our position in Christ when we are saved. There's nothing flimsy or fickle about our status. Our position in Christ is firmly attached because it was done correctly through Christ's death on the cross, and it will never move, fall, or break, to use the dictionary terms. Christ's work was perfectly effective. When we believe in him, trusting in his saving work, he justifies us, declaring us to be right with God, a status change that occurs instantaneously but continues into eternity. And to make it even more secure, we are adopted into God's family. He makes us his own. My title also implies a timeline with the words from and to. This refers to the life that we live between being saved and our final destination at death. During this time, we are not simply coasting to the finish line, or as some would say, circling the drain. The Christian life is not an endless or fruitless circle, but a forward and upward call, a life that shows progress towards a goal. It is the time period when God is at work in us, transforming us into the likeness of Christ as we diligently seek him. Many love to quote Romans 8:28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, which begs the question, what is his purpose? Verse 29 answers it, to be conformed to the image of his son. Only then can we live a life that's pleasing to him. And finally, the term safely home, which probably doesn't need explanation. It is the end goal, what we long for, to be united with Christ, knowing even as we are known, unfettered by these earthly bodies, no longer fighting sin, the flesh, the influence of the world, and the enemy's attacks on our soul. We will be forever with the Lord to do what we were always created to do, to declare his greatness and his worth. This is called glorification, which is the promise that our earthly bodies will be exchanged for heavenly bodies, and we will be safely home for eternity with the Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's begin with securely in. If I were to ask you why God would accept you, if you were to stand before him this very moment, what would you say to me? Would you, with humility and gratitude, have complete confidence that your acceptance is based on faith in Christ's death on the cross alone? Or would you, in addition, begin to recite some of the good things that you have done? Are you relying even partly on your merits? Are you trying to secure that ladder yourself? This can lead either to pride or a lack of assurance depending on how good you've been, which makes for a great deal of uncertainty about one's standing before God. Ray Comfort is an evangelist who likes to go out to the public beaches in California and ask a question similar to this. Invariably, people respond that they think they are good enough. 
that God will measure them on some type of celestial scale, and if the good outweighs the bad, they will be acceptable. It becomes a great lead-in for him to share the gospel, but first he has to convince them how really bad they are. But even for professing Christians, I have noticed the subtle tendency to fall back on one's own merits to justify them. They start measuring their worth by their works, and ever so slowly they begin to either be proud and presumptuous, forgetting they were once outcasts, adopted purely by grace, or they wallow in insecurity. In either case, they don't advance in maturity. So for all these reasons, the gospel needs to be rehearsed often and rightly. To do this, we need to start at the beginning, literally. The first four words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God. It all starts with God. That first verse, God reveals himself as the creator of all things. And because of that, he's over all that he has made. He sets the rules, and he has the right to call us to account for breaking them. He is sovereign, absolute in power and authority, and God used pottery making to make this point in Jeremiah 18. A potter molds, shapes, and makes a pot or a vessel according to his will. He can use it, or he can smash it and start over, or he can simply destroy it. His goal is to make it useful for his purpose. How ludicrous, then, for the vessel to say to the potter, Why have you made me like this? The Creator has total control over what he has made. God is a triune God, three persons in one Godhead, revealed in the scriptures as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All of the attributes of the Father are true of the Son and are also true of the Holy Spirit. For the sake of time, I'm just going to focus on three attributes. Um, number one, he is holy, which means he is perfect, set apart from what, from what is flawed or imperfect. He is just, which means he judges rightly and with perfect justice. And thirdly, he is loving, which is most clearly seen in his redemptive work for sinful man. All of these attributes operate fully at all times. He is not loving at the expense of being holy. He is not just at the expense of being loving. In contrast to God, we have the condition of man. After God created all things, he called it very good. Man at that time had perfect fellowship with God, a privilege that set him apart from the rest of creation because only man was made in the image of God. He was morally perfect with the freedom to choose and he chose to disobey God's command by eating the fruit that God had forbidden. Romans 5.12 tells us what happened. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men for all sin. Let me explain sin. Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that is not in line with God's standard of holiness. It can refer to the personal acts that we commit, but in this verse, it refers to a state of being or position before God that became true for all of creation from that point on. Adam sinned and ushered in death that affected everything. We became rule breakers, rebels, and enemies of God. Things were no longer good, but became corrupt 
and lost. The Bible is clear about the condition of man, Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is his holiness, his perfection. What is the consequence for sin? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. <clears throat> because God is just, he deals with sin. He can't simply overlook it. He is perfectly righteous to condemn it. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God provided clothing for them, made from animal skins to cover the shame of their nakedness. That meant that an animal had been killed to provide that covering. This was the first physical death in God's creation, part of the curse. This would be repeated all throughout the Old Testament, animals being slaughtered so that blood could be sprinkled to symbolically cover the sinner, providing temporary forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The sacrifices were a picture of something better and more permanent to come. Can you imagine living in Jerusalem near the temple during the time when sacrifices took place with the smell of the blood and the dead animals and the burning flesh? The sacrifices had to be offered again and again because man sinned repeatedly. It was messy, smelly, and ugly. So picture bringing this good news to the Jews of that day. No need to slaughter animals anymore. God has supplied the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, his own son. The writer to the Hebrews had that same message in chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for us an eternal redemption. No more temporary fixes. This good news should have been joyfully received by them were it not for their hardness of heart. But even for us today who have not seen the consequences for sin displayed like that in real life, seeing the blood and the mess, being reminded by our senses of the cost to obtain forgiveness, the gospel doesn't come across quite so dramatically as the good news that it is. We read about the historical account of Jesus on the cross and we have to imagine it. Can we adequately picture the shame, the humiliation, the betrayal, the rejection, the insults, the injustice to an innocent man, the agony and the suffering? Do we make the connection with Christ's suffering and our sin? Jew or Gentile, all people are guilty. We experience the same separation from God because of sin. We face the same urgent problem in that we can't get rid of the penalty for sin. There is no difference because there are no hierarchies or qualifiers where sin is concerned. It doesn't matter your social standing, your race, your economic status, your education, your connections. We are all on the same level ground below the cross desperate sinners needing a savior. One last thing about sin, if we commit just one, we are guilty, plain and simple. James 2.10 tells us that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point 
has become guilty of it all. One sin is an offense against a holy God who cannot allow even that one sin go unpunished. So being good enough is not, nor will it ever be, good enough. But thanks be to God, he provided the solution. Remember that God's justice and his love are not two opposing attributes. They operate fully at all times. So God, in love, set in motion a plan that he had determined before the foundation of the earth to redeem or buy back what was lost. He himself would be our redeemer. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is perfect love. It is immeasurable, indescribable, undeserved grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God, took our place and received in his body the punishment that we deserved because of our sin, giving us in exchange his righteousness. What a trade. So this is good news. Jesus paid our sin debt. Let's think about that debt as a long list of expenses which have accumulated in our bank account. For all of us, that debt is too large to pay. This is illustrated in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. The king demanded to be paid for, back for a debt owed him by a servant. It was a huge debt and could not have been paid off in the man's lifetime. The servant begged passionately for mercy, and the king had compassion and forgave him the debt. Immediately, though, the servant went out and he saw another man who owed him a small amount in comparison, and the forgiven servant demanded payment. This new man also begged for forgiveness, but the forgiven servant would not relent and threw the man into prison until he had paid it off. Word got back to the king, who immediately had the forgiven servant, who refused to forgive, put in prison. He should have shown mercy because he was shown mercy. There are two invaluable contrasts in this parable. The first is between the extent and value of the sins we have committed toward God, and, represented by the king, and the sins we commit against one another. One is too great to pay, the other is forgivable. The second contrast is between the mercy of the king, who represents God toward us, and how unforgiving we can be towards one another. Our sin debt cannot be paid by good works, good intentions, or any other human effort, because even our best efforts are flawed. Uh, Isaiah 64, 6 calls our righteous deeds a polluted garment. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin can only be paid for by the perfect Son of God, who gave his life willingly to wipe the slate clean. 
It is imputed righteousness, which means given, not earned. Ephesians 2.8 makes this very clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, so that not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So apart from Christ, we are hopelessly lost. Were it not for the work of the Holy Spirit convicting our hearts of sin and judgment, we would not even seek Christ. He awakens us to our true state and we respond with repentance. To sum up then, when by faith we have believed and trusted the gospel message, which is Christ's finished work on the cross for our sin, finished meaning there is nothing more to be done to save us, in repentance, we have acknowledged our sinfulness and need of a Savior, and we are not trusting our own works to bring salvation, then we are securely in Christ. We need not be troubled by doubts about our salvation. God has written on our account, paid in full. No more red ink, no more debt, no more penalty for sin. Before him, we stand fully justified and righteous. He will not yank that ladder out from under our feet. We are saved on the merits of Christ, and he has made it secure. Jesus says this in John 10, 27 through 29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if we are asked for what reason we can stand justified before a holy God, our answer is because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for my sins. He exchanged my filthy rags for his robe of righteousness. I am right with God because of Christ. Sorry, that's good news. <clears throat> now we come to the timeline between being securely in Christ to the moment of our death. This is when we are under new ownership because we have been transferred from slavery to the world in its ways to now being followers of Christ. We're not left to figure out this life, how to live this life on our own. We've been given the Holy Spirit as our tutor to conform us to the image of Christ. This process of Christ being formed in us occurs as we are sanctified or set apart from our previous devotion to the world to our new devotion to Christ. It is to be free to choose to follow Christ, no longer slaves to sins, to sin, but alive to Christ. Following Christ affects everything. How can it not? We have passed from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. We have a new Lord, a new nature, with new desires, new goals, new thoughts, new worship. 2 Corinthians 5.17 calls us a new creation when we are in Christ. The old has passed away, the new has come. This new life can only be lived through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He is given to us to live in us, according to Ephesians 1.13, as a seal, a guarantee of our inheritance. 
It was crucial that I explain the doctrine of justification first, because if we don't have that part rightly understood, then we will misapply sanctification. How? By trying to live the Christian life when we are not even in Christ. And what does that look like? It is striving in the flesh to accomplish what can only be done by the Spirit. The fruit of that life is dead works that lack faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, all the while claiming promises from God's word that are only intended for the redeemed. This is illustrated in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. The king was having a feast and had invited guests who didn't come, so he sent out the invitation to others. The king supplied the wedding garments to be worn by his guests. The improperly dressed were cast out to utter darkness. They are those that have an outward show of commitment to God but lack the one thing that gives them actual acceptance. Only those wearing Christ's righteousness will be allowed in the kingdom. We cannot come dressed in our own righteousness. So the rest of this message is really only useful to the redeemed, those professing faith in Christ. For them, there are great benefits to this new life in Christ. The most immediate and freeing one is the removal of the guilt. Romans 8, 1 and 2, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We are no longer condemned, but are fully forgiven. Then from verse 15, we have this assurance. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We can call God Father. Once outcasts, we are now adopted into his family as heirs with his beloved son. With that comes a wealth of spiritual resources that enable us to please him and walk in a manner worthy of Christ. What does the Christian life look like? Colossians 1, 9 through 12 sums it up very well. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How does this become true for us? There are disciplines we must exercise, and we have the provision of godly mentors in the church, but Jesus' primary strategy for discipleship is found in John 15. It says this, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This picture of being united with Christ as a branch is united with the vine suggests total surrender. 
A branch that is not receiving the proper flow of nutrients will wither and die, never bearing fruit. We are totally dependent, just as a branch is, on the supplier of life, Christ himself. Following Christ affects everything, as I have mentioned before, but I want to address briefly three important areas in the believer's life in which there will be evidence of the sanctifying work of God, our thoughts, our affections, and our conduct. Why are our thoughts so important? Because they are the first line of defense against the lies of the enemy before our hearts become affected and we carry something out in our conduct. It is also where we can go on the offensive, silencing doubt and fear by reminding ourselves of what is true. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We have a new identity which should affect what we set our minds on. Let me ask you three questions. What do we seek first? In Matthew 6:33, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That was said in response to the anxious worries of man. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall I wear? We could add our own list of concerns, but whatever they are, Jesus replies not by offering tips on how to get them, but by assuring his disciples and us that first of all, our Heavenly Father knows us, and he's mindful of our needs. So rather than focus on the needs, he commands us to seek first his kingdom, and the rest will fall into place. This command directs our thoughts heavenward in dependence on a faithful God. The second question is, do we think of all things from God's perspective? What does God say about marriage, sex, ourselves, relationships, money, modesty, government, giving, and any number of areas? Everything must be informed by God's word because it speaks to all of it. The scriptures are sufficient for life and godliness. And thirdly, where do we set our mind? Where do our thoughts live and what effect does that have on us? Romans 8, 5, and 6 make this very clear. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They are hostile to, to God, cannot please God, and their end is death. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit, which produces life and peace. Our thoughts have life-affecting consequences. The second area of sanctification is our affections. By affections, I generally mean our heart. The scripture, scriptures uses the word heart often in connection with love, that highest of all affections but it can also refer to the whole inner being, your mind, will, and emotions. We are commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Since loving God comes from within, the only visible way to show what we worship and love is our obedience to the one we say we love. Matthew 6:21 tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What we treasure, what matters to us, what we spend time dwelling on, nurturing, relying on, reveals what holds preeminence in our hearts. 
Thomas Chalmers is a Puritan preacher, and he wrote a sermon entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. I love that title as it gives a very good description of what our affections are able to do. They have the power to expel or force out other affections, which is notable because affections can run deep, especially ones that are nurtured over time. We build our lives around them and we set priorities based on them. How do we get rid of bad affections? Chalmers makes the point that one could talk all day long about the folly, the damage, and the coming judgment of our sinful affections in the hopes that we will simply abandon them. But only asking us to remove those affections is like asking us to willfully set fire to our property. We might do that if our lives were at stake, but how much more earnestly would we do it if we saw that a new property of greater value would instantly arise out of the ruins of the old. His remedy for getting rid of evil affections is to set fire or mortify it by filling it, filling our hearts with new and better ones. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us how this is done. <clears throat> Excuse me. But we all with unveiled face Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We need to fill our minds and hearts with the word of God. It is there that we behold him who alone is able to transform us into his image. That is how we put on our new self, renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. Colossians 3.10. Our affections are changed the more we see him in all his glory and beauty. We all know we can't fabricate love for God. Only the spirit living inside of us is able to fill our hearts with love for the Father. That love expels or shoves out love for the world. We discover that by giving up what we thought was meaningful, it opens the way for something far more valuable and worthwhile. C.S. Lewis says that our love for good music, good books, beauty, memories, things that we value, are simply longings for something deeper and more lasting. These things, he says, are good images of what we really desire, but they, if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. Let me describe from Isaiah 46, 1 through 5, the difference between the things we crave in our hearts compared to the greater one, God himself. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and will save to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? 
What are we carrying around in our hearts that we are trusting? Has it ensnared us? Is it able to rescue us in times of trouble? That thing we long for, when we finally get it, does it truly satisfy us? Is it able to deliver us from fear of judgment and death? Do we have to serve it? Or are we trusting the God who promises to carry us, save us, provide for us? We may say we trust God, but when difficult times come, where do we turn for help? The psalmist asks the same question. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Well, certainly not from the hills or even from man. The psalmist answers, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Why would we set our affections on anyone other than God? The more we dwell on him, the more the Holy Spirit will fill us with a desire to know him more. The third area where God sanctifies us is in our conduct. His transformative work in our mind and heart will ultimately be evident in our conduct. That is the obvious part of our Christianity. It's the part people see. Do they see us loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do they see us serving one another in humility? Do they witness our speech tempered by the self-control that God supplies? Has his presence in our lives affected our schedule, our dress, who we keep company with? As followers of Christ, we will not be at home with sinful living or keeping bad company. It will make us uncomfortable. Habits born out of jealousy, greed, immodesty, immorality, anxiety, worry, gossip will make us unsettled and convicted. The struggles we are experiencing may not be anything other than our own sinful ways we must abandon or put to death until we have surrendered everything to God's control. That is because we are not our own. We belong to Christ. Matthew 6, 24 tells us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money or possessions. Notice it uses the term masters, which implies that what we are serving owns us. So either our possessions own us or God owns us. Remember the verses about idols? They demand and enslave in the worst possible way. They promise but don't deliver. Matthew 6, 24 tells us that, oh, sorry, God, on the other hand, is so perfectly good that being owned or united with him is the best of all possible benefits. He will carry. He will save. He will deliver. I chose just a few areas in which our conduct can show that we are either serving Christ or that we are still struggling with the flesh. Yours might be different. I encourage you to examine your heart, asking the Holy Spirit to show you and be willing to be admonished in the Lord. The first is our speech. Does it honor God and benefit others or dishonor him and hurt others? Are we more intent on talking about ourselves or in listening for the purpose of using our speech to build up others? The book of James describes our tongue like a fire a world of unrighteousness able to set a forest ablaze. Or conversely, 
The tongue of the wise brings healing. What a difference our words can make. Secondly, our dress. Is it our intention to draw people to Christ or to ourselves? Who are we considering when we dress? May I make a gentle but urgent appeal. We live in a very sexualized world. Almost everyone is exposed to sexually oriented visual material multiple times every day and most of the time unwillingly. It's on billboards, in stores, in ads, on TV, on the computer. We can't really escape it. We should not contribute to that in the church. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, let us make 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4 our guide. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Lastly, our works. Why do we do what we do? To be seen of men or to please the Lord? It is tempting to think that our works add points in our favor with God or people. Paul admonishes the Galatians, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let our works be for an audience of one, to please the Lord. We need to be okay if no one notices. It is enough that we belong to God. To finish this section on sanctification, let me say a few things about perseverance. The encouragement to us is this. God will not stop working on us until the day we see him face to face. He finishes what he starts and will not abandon his handiwork. Ephesians 4.15 tells us we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He will use circumstances, difficulties, trials, suffering, everything to remove the dross, refine us as silver, until his own reflection is more clearly seen in our lives. 1 Peter 1.6 offers this hope. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a prize worth pursuing, a genuine faith that honors God. God has equipped us to live lives pleasing to him. In 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4, it says he has granted to us all things for life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And he has also given us his great and precious promises towards that end. The Holy Spirit is our constant guide to protect, comfort, instruct, convict, and empower to live godly lives for the glory of God. We need confidence in order to persevere. Ephesians 6.12 tells us we are engaged in a fierce battle against the schemes of the devil. He also will not abandon his goal, which is to discourage, defeat, and render us ineffective. We need to be ready to fight, taking up all the resources God has supplied and having done all to stand firm. We live in a world that hates God and will hate us. How do we prepare? 
by drawing near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, trusting in the one who promised and who is faithful. How do we navigate the challenges in our culture, the evil we see around us, and the confusion and disunity among people, even in the church? Consider this verse, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Eve was led to question the character of God through the deceitful schemes of the serpent. It went badly for her and for us. But the truth is, we can chase rabbits and be led astray in a myriad of ways too. Where does it lead us? We need to guard against anything that leads us away from that primary focus, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Finally, Hebrews 11.35 encourages us with these words, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And now we're at the end of the story, safely home. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Have you ever been on a long trip or been away from your family for a long time and are finally heading home and you can't wait to round that corner and see the familiar house that you call home? Or maybe home for you was a hard place full of discord, pain, sadness, betrayal. We all long for a safe place where love dwells, peace abounds, and needs are met. But what is home for the believer? It is to be with the Lord, finally and forever, to be at the end of our faith journey when faith becomes sight and we see him face to face. It is to know even as we are known, it is to be in his presence, in perfect, uninterrupted communion, free from fear, sorrow, death, pain, tears, grief, and sin. It has been kept for us all this time as an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. In a practical way, it's having all our questions answered, all our conflicts resolved, all wrongs righted, releasing all our struggles and anxious toil, being freed from our burdens, and to finally be at rest because we are with him. This is the future hope of the redeemed to those who are in Christ, to stand before the Father blameless, witnessing and sharing the exceeding joy that Jesus will have in presenting us to the Father, having accomplished perfectly what he was given to do, which was to bring us safely and triumphantly home to the praise of his glory. Let me close with these three admonitions. If you are in Christ, be confident in the gospel that places you securely in him with nothing added. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Secondly, be surrendered and committed to follow Christ in mind, heart, and conduct. 
God is at work sanctifying you and making you fit for service. Persevere to the end. And lastly, be expectant of your eternal home and rest in the God who will guide you safely there. Let me pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to behold such a treasure of truths from your word today that we who were once your enemies have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, able to enjoy full acceptance and favor, supplied with every good thing to live lives pleasing to you. We stand before you in reverence and humble gratitude for what you have done, not for anything our own hand has accomplished. Teach us daily to abide in you, trusting you to complete in us the work you began, knowing you will keep us to the end. Give us love that stems from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Let us glorify you in all things. Thank you for being our Father, Jesus our Savior, Holy Spirit our Comforter and Guide, for being our sufficiency, our hope, and our everlasting joy. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. <laughs>